Everybody, it's Mike, and we're here with episode six of You Don't Know History. And today, I am joined by John Legg, a PhD student at George Mason University, who specializes in the history and memory of violence between indigenous communities, white settlers, and the federal government in the Northern Great Plains during the 19th century. That is quite a mouthful, uh, John. Uh, first, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's fun talking about history. Um, on podcasts. This is the second time I've done it. Um, and thanks for inviting me. Hey, I'm, I'm glad you can make it, especially with our topic today, uh, where we're going to talk the U.S.-Dakota War. Um, now, I will be uh, truth, you know, be honest, like I am with a lot of, you know, all my guests is I am more uh, interested in and would like to specialize in Irish history, uh, especially dealing with the Troubles. Uh, so my knowledge on uh, this particular subject was slim to none, uh, but it's, it's good. I think it's important that we, especially as Americans, we start highlighting, um, you know, I guess the contentious relationship between the United States government and the indigenous population in the United States, uh, regardless of the tribal grouping. Um, and this particular one deals with what I, I correct me if I'm wrong. Like if if we're looking at more common knowledge, they're they're referred to as the Sioux, but the Sioux is a very kind of that's a misnomer, isn't it? Yeah. So as, you know, today you might hear the term Sioux by Dakota people, Lakota people, um, and it's something that we generally know the the Sioux Nation, um, the sovereign entity. Um, but in the 19th century, the Dakota people um, see the term Sioux as derogatory. Um, it was a name given to them by their French and Algonquian enemies. Um, and Sioux is a much larger French word that I still don't know how to pronounce, um, but Sioux translates to the Dakota people as snake or demon-like enemy. So from its very conception, the term is very derogatory to the Dakota people. And in the 19th century, um, these Dakota people just rejected the use of it. Okay, yeah. And that's, so from here on out, we'll be referring to as the tribal grouping as the Dakota. And now even with the Dakota, that is still a very big kind of umbrella, uh, I guess, name, because the various bands had their own different, you know, affiliated names as well, correct? Yeah, and the people that I mostly focus on, the communities that I focus on, um, are part of the Santee, which are the Eastern Dakota, the people that are living um, around Minnesota, Iowa, um, places like that, even up to uh, into Canada. Um, so the Santee are kind of a larger umbrella and underneath that are smaller communities. Um, and the people that I mostly focus on in these smaller communities are the Metawankatans. Um, and these are the, the Dakota that lived close to the Minnesota River Valley and the Lower Sioux Agency. And that's something we can get into later. Um, but they are the, the group primarily responsible for starting the, the Dakota War fighting. Um, so it's interesting when you see these different tiers and how 
um, interrelated these communities are. Yeah, I, that, was, that was one thing I learned, uh, especially about Southeastern uh, tribal groupings, is that you know, people like to use the Cherokee as this big kind of catch-all, but there's a lot of different uh, you know, bands that are locate, you know, or that are you know, affiliated with like locations rather than just like, hey, you know, or, or even uh, uh, language groupings. You know, you'll, you'll see that you know, uh, drives a lot. Um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of a, it was, it was for somebody who's not well-versed in, uh, you know, indigenous history, it was something for me to, to get used to real quick, especially when you're dealing with, uh, uh, like what, like I was telling you before, Dr. Jamie Mize, who just knows, it seems like she knows everything about Southeastern indigenous history. Uh, so it came at me pretty quick and I had to learn, you know, pretty quick as well, but okay. So let's, let's get into this. All right. So the, the U.S. Dakota War roughly is, is said to start in 1862, but what was the relationship between the federal government and the Dakota people leading up until 1862? Yeah, so just for some contextual background information, um, Minnesota becomes a state in 1858, but before that, um, it was a territory. And in 1851, the federal government, as they're expanding their control of land into the West, um, into Minnesota, uh, they're trying to create um, and sign these treaties with indigenous communities. Um, that way there's peace, they have control, um, they have this authority um, into these new lands that they're obtaining. Um, by purchasing through treaties. Um, so in 1851 in Minnesota, there's these two really important treaties that are signed. And there were some that were signed earlier in Minnesota, but in the context of the Dakota War, um, the Treaty of Traverse de Sioux and the Treaty of Mendota are really important legislation that is signed um, between the federal government and the Dakota people primarily those of the Santee. Um, so in 1851, these two documents basically relinquished Dakota lands for the sum of $1.6 million in cash and annuities to the federal government. And the federal government promised to pay these annuity payments so long as the Dakota people moved onto two different reservations along the Minnesota River. Um, one is the upper Sioux agency, and then the others, the lower Sioux agency. Um, and the lower Sioux agency is primarily the Mattawankatan community, and this is where a lot of the fighting starts during the U.S. Dakota War. Um, but there's this relationship constructed between the federal government and the Santee Dakota through these treaties, which ultimately creates the system that leads to the Dakota War um, and we can get into that in a little bit, but basically um, there, this all plays into the influx of white settlers into Minnesota, the um, population rise, um, and Minnesota was becoming this like large place in the 1860s. And by 18... What, uh, drew, what drew settlers up to Minnesota? Like, you know, we know out in California, there was the gold rush, you know, and, and, you know, for Oklahoma, it was the cheap land, you know, but what was, was, what was the pool for, for settlers up to Minnesota? 
I think it was primarily this vast agricultural landscape. Uh, if you've ever been to Minnesota, I've been there several times. It's, it's kind of like rural Ohio, you know, very fat, flat plains, open areas, you know, prime for farming and agriculture. Um, and you see that a lot, especially in Southern Minnesota where the Dakota War happens. Okay. Um, and so by 1850, I've, I found some numbers here. Um, the population was about 6,000 white Minnesotans and around 31,700 Native Americans. And that includes more than Dakota. It includes Ojibwe and Ho-Chunk um, all over the state. Yeah. By 1860, the numbers actually flip um, and there's around 170,000 white Minnesotans compared to only 19,600 natives in the whole wow. state. That's not, that's a huge population jump in a decade. Like that's, yeah. you know, and I understand like, you know, with a lot of, uh, you know, territorial, territorial expansion in the United States, like you, you had population jumps, but that's from under 10,000 to, you know, over almost 200,000 in 10 years. That's, that's nuts. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is a really good spot to talk about major legislation that helped spark this movement into Minnesota. And in 1862, as the civil war is raging, this is years after the two treaties are signed. Um, Abraham Lincoln signs in these three different um, acts um, that sparks this expansion of the American empire. Um, the first one's the Pacific Railway, Railway Act um, of 1862, which helps connect the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, there's the Morrill Land Grant Act, which helps create uh, land grant colleges and institutions all around the country. Um, but the most important to this topic is the Homestead Act, um, which was signed by Lincoln in May of 1862, which, and it gave citizens um, up to 160 acres of land, provided they lived on it, they improved it, and they paid the small registration fee. Um, yeah, the, the, the Homestead Act led to a lot of land speculation, though, did yeah. it not? Yeah, like it was kind of crazy. Like they went out, lived on it for like a month, you know, put, put a house down, you know, or, or some, a, a couple barns and a silo, and, th and then they went back home, and they just, like, parceled it out. Like, it, the Homestead Act was a, a horrible piece of legislation. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, this is something that um, I think Richard White talks about in his book, Railroaded, um, also in William Cronin's book, uh, Nature's Metropolis, um, where he talks about the Homestead Act opened this vast land to Americans, um, but in some cases, these lands were not accessible to the market. Yeah. So if they're growing crops, if they're selling things, there's no way to bring this stuff to the market. And that's why the, the rise of the railroad really helps in connecting the rural with the urban. Yeah. Um, and so that was this early issue of the Homestead Act was a lot of people lived in these vast open spaces by themselves and especially in Minnesota, in these open prairies, there's not much wood to yeah. build your home. You know, they have to, and they can't even ship it in because there's no railroads, there's no uh, shipping, you know. And I know in Minnesota in the earlier periods, um, you know, steamships and, and boats played a significant role in, in the shipping process. Um, but yeah, the Homestead Act de definitely had these issues. But, um, as it's introduced and, and passed, 
Um, the government gives up to 270 million acres of land through this Homestead Act. And this is like one part of the Dakota War story is this Dakota homeland is kind of bought from the Dakota and given to white settlers. Yeah. And by 1862, there's thousands of white settlers that have moved into South Central Minnesota. Um, and they're threatening the, the Dakota way of life. The hunting and the fishing uh, numbers have decreased. Um, Dakota people are relying on the food and supplies by Indian agents. Um, and it's becoming a very dire situation, all because yeah. of the influx of white people. Yeah, I, I think that's probably one of the, the grossest things in American history is how if you look at a lot of the indigenous groups that were forced to sign these treaties, and let's face it, um, you know, I, I'm sure you, you, you know, you've seen this in your studies, you have historians that sit there and say, no, they, they negotiated in good faith, they should have known better. No, dude, you know, these people were just trying to live their life. Uh, and then you have a bunch of, you know, uniformed soldiers roll in, you know, whether it's on horseback, and, and they're armed, and, you know, I'm sorry, that could be a little uh, disconcerting when you see all that rolling up on your doorstep. It's not a negotiation in good faith when you have an arm, when one party is heavily armed and the other is not. Um, and there's this misconception of the treaties themselves too. Um, and this all comes down to how these Indian agents and the, the signers of the, the treaties in 1851 kind of take advantage of the situation. Yeah. Um, when the Dakota arrived to sign these treaties, um, the white party added in these secret documents called traders papers um, that allowed Indian agents to collect debt that had been building um, over the years. And so when the Dakota people signed the documents, they kind of slip in this additional thing that basically takes a large chunk of their annuity payment from the federal government. You know, they were supposed to get 1.6 million. I think it was like around $400,000 that these Indian agents were able to take right off the bat. And it was their way to make money yeah. in the situation and take advantage of the Dakota. Um, and so these Indian agents played this really interesting role in kind of dictating how Dakota people lived. Yeah, I, I thought that was really curious too. Um, is what what kind of position was the Indian agent? Uh, you know, was this an appointed position? Uh, what you know, where were they? Could anybody uh, you know apply for this job, or were they political appointees? Um, and and why did the federal government kind of insert this? this person into the conversation uh, when we're talking about like the, the native, the native grouping there, like why, why did they have to have this Indian agent to kind of advocate for them? Yeah. Uh, good question. Um, from the, what I understand is the Indian agent served as this middle ground um, between native communities and the federal government. And this is before the reservation period and the rise of <clears throat> reservations that uh, Native Americans are moved on to. Um, they served as this official government figure to handle issues, to show authority, um, to deal with debt, to deal with supplies and goods. Um, because a part of these treaties, yes, like cash was a big thing, 
but they're also given supplies, yeah. food, shelter, supplies, stuff of that nature. And so these Indian agents were responsible for making sure everything moved smoothly. Um, but especially by the time of the Dakota War and the, the time of the reservation period, they definitely served as this authoritative figure that controlled how and they lived. Yeah, and like you were saying, when you're you know when you're uh, disrupting the ability to hunt and fish, um, you know, and uh, you know later on we'll see that uh, you know one of the big leaders for the Dakota during this time was was shot and killed by a white settler because he was trying to get food on his land. You know, it, it kind of dissuades you from going to hunt where you typically did when that hunting ground's been parceled up and given to a white settler. You know, it just seemed like that was part of the. The, the federal government's, you know, embrace of, you know, we're going to marginalize these people because we want the land, all right, and, and we'll let them have, you know, what we're able to provide, if we want to provide them with anything, you know, um, that kind of yeah. gets into a larger conversation about, like, what, what genocide is, uh, you know, we can kind of get into that, delve into that a little later. Uh, I, I think that's a bit too big of a subject to tackle right at the beginning, <laughs> you know, um, but so you, we have these Indian agents, you know, these Indian agents that are essentially taking the annuity payments, uh, to cover debt, uh, for, for living, you know, for supplies and living expenses that, you know, the Dakota people were forced into taking because their way of life, way of life was completely disrupted. Um, you know, uh, so we, we have almost 200,000 white settlers in, you know, Minnesota by the time they become a state, correct? Um, but you know what when it gained statehood what was the relationship between the dakota and the state government like uh did they did they look to maybe uh rather than having a contentious relationship were, were there people in the state government that were actually trying to smooth things over uh you know maybe setting up a better trade you know opportunities for for the dakota or or you know, hey, you can hunt on these lands at these, like, were they, were there, was there any kind of olive branch from the state government to the Dakota people? Yeah. Uh, that's something that I need to look into. The way that I see it currently is the state and the federal government worked in tandem to control the Dakota community through these treaties and through the policies that they created um, to kind of control them and restrict them into these reservation lands. Um, but I'll look into that more. Um, yeah, I just think it's it's very interesting because you have a lot of state government, not a lot, but you had a few state governments or maybe even just localized uh, government officials that actually tried uh, to to have a good relationship with the native groups that were in, you know, that they shared uh, space with. Um, but I, 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 I honestly think you probably hit the nail more on the head when you have the state, like when you said the state and the federal governments are working in tandem you know, to, to make things very uncomfortable for the, for the native populations. Now, so 1861, I think we all know that the Civil War kicks off, uh, or, you know, late 1860, we have, you know, Fort Sumter is being fired at from Confederate forces, things are getting out of hand, uh, you know, uh, and then, you know, the first year doesn't go well for, for the federal government, you, you know, the, the Union troops, if you will, they, they kind of take it on the nose really bad that first year. Um, 1862, though, uh, you know, 
we see that this isn't going to be that quick little war that a lot of, if, you know, the influential people in the United States thought it was going to be, you know, this is going to be a protracted affair. Um, you know, but it still seems like, uh, you know, the federal government still had an idea that we have to continue that westward push, you know, um, you know, so that kind of opens up the conversation to, uh, you know, how in the hell did the federal government decide, you know, how, how do they, have the means to fight a civil war and still try and push, you know, their colonial ambitions further west. Yeah, um, well, I think that question really hits the, the major point of the civil war. And while I argue that slavery is the main cause of the civil war, the debate over slavery, um, accompanying that debate over slavery is the expansion westward. Um, and the Confederacy used the westward expansion as a way to move slavery further west to build their nation, to expand their reach, um, expand their capitalist enterprise of slavery. Um, and it was a constant battle with the federal government to, to meet that match. And you see that throughout the legislation of, of the early 19th century, the Missouri Compromise, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the various moments where as slave states are extending westward, uh, non-slave states, free states are also coming into existence. And so I think, I argue that the Civil War was of course a war over slavery, but it was also a war for this building of an empire. Um, and the US used that moment to take control over the people that they didn't see as citizens to control, to be authoritative over. Um, and so through like this legislation of the Homestead Act and the other 1862 acts, um, and as they're fighting the civil war over slavery and the expansion of slavery, um, they're using this moment to control and subdue indigenous enemies that they do not see as citizens. Yeah, you know, that's a, uh, an outstanding point is that slavery, I mean, you and I could both agree on that slavery was the, the driving factor uh, behind the U.S. Civil War. Uh, and there are people that can, you know, try and argue that till they're blue in the face. But uh, when you look at just the articles of secession themselves, um, and then you have, you know, old Alexander Stevens' cornerstone speech. Yeah, man, we get it. Uh, this was to keep, you know, Black people uh, in a subservient, less than human role. Uh, and that's why the war was fought. Um, but, you know, coupled with that was that westward expansion. And if you look at some of the the other, you know, sources, like they tried to buy Cuba, you know, uh, you know, to, to extend slavery. They contacted Mexico about buying a couple Mexican states, you know, uh, to, to expand slavery. So, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of westward hoe type approach was to continue the spread of a, a horrible institution. Um, but you know, I, I, you know, it's 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 just nuts that like you 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 have this war that you're fighting to save your government, but you're still like, well, we, we still got to keep pushing west, and we still have to subdue these indigenous populations. Like, uh, you know, like priorities, man. Come on, Lincoln. You know? <laughs> well, let me add to that. Um, there was some conspiracy in the federal government with the Dakota War, where the U.S. government thought that 
this insurrection, this rebellion, this uprising by the Dakota was a ploy created by the Confederates. And while this isn't a reality, this isn't true, but there's some people in Washington that believe that the Confederacy joined sides with Little Crow or the Dakota leaders and caused this insurrection further west to take their attention away from the east, to take their attention away from Robert E. Lee or the, you know, those yeah. fighting in, in Georgia or Tennessee or Kentucky. Um, it's really interesting just to see how interconnected the Civil War is with this conflict, even though a lot of historians, some living today, um, have argued that they are complete separate. And yeah. it, you know, you look at the rhetoric that's being discussed about the Dakota War during the Civil War, you look at the leaders that have their hands in both conflicts. You even look at the soldiers. There was um, Minnesota regiments that fought down at Corinth in Mississippi, around Shiloh, and then went back and they fought against Dakota months later in Minnesota. So it's really interesting to just see like, there is a connection to the Civil War. The Dakota War is this important moment in Civil War history that's talking about westward expansion, colonialism, empire building, um, all in this conversation of slavery. Yeah. And one more point to make is, you know, there's this fight over capitalism between the North and the South. The South, of course, is trying to protect this enterprise of slavery, and the North is trying to protect this idea of free soil, free labor, uh, of the Republican Party that is all about agriculture and capitalism and, and building your own destiny. Um, so it's really interesting to see these moments that are often ignored from that story as important points. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all interconnected, especially when, you know, the, you know, it goes back to like that big picture view. Yeah, you could look at the macro, but a there's a lot of micro incidents within that umbrella to where it's all interconnected, you know? And I mean, let's face it, if, if you're a, a people that has, you know, slowly having your way of life chipped away and being destroyed, you're going to want to fight back eventually uh, because you're going to see the writing on the wall. Like it's either we stand up for ourselves or we're going to get bowled over. What better time to hit back at that, that, you know, that enemy than when they're already fighting someone else. Like it, it makes perfect sense, uh, you know, from a strategic point of view, you know, I mean, it's, it's um, okay. So we have, you know, civil wars going on and on 17 August, this is, this is what I read. 17 August, 1862 is when, this this conflict officially kicks off um and from what i was able to dig into you know because yes this is history and we are taking the big look you know, let's look at some of the the people involved you know our bigger names you know and for the federal government we have john pope and henry hastings sibley uh you know why, why don't you tell us a little bit about those two yeah sure but for some context let me back up for a sec oh absolutely describe how the Dakota War starts. Okay. Just so people get an understanding of what happens in that August day. Um, so as we talked about previously, the Dakota people are starving. There's Indian agents that literally are withholding supplies. Um, you brought it up in some of your comments uh, before this interview, the Indian agent, Andrew Myrick who we can yeah. talk about later, but he's most famously known for this line, 
where he says, if the Dakota are that hungry, let them eat grass or their own dung. And so this really just resonates the point that they don't care about the Dakota people. They don't care that they're starving. And so it gets to the point where Dakota people are out scavenging, searching for food. And so on that morning of the 17th, um, there's a small party of Dakota kind of young teenagers, maybe early 20s um, year old men yeah. that are out searching for food. And they come up to a homestead in uh, Acton, Minnesota. Uh, and there's some, there's some controversy over the story, but from what I've heard um, and read in primary sources, um, there was some type of game or bet made like I bet you can't do this or that yeah uh, it, it was some... it was some young idiot stuff I mean let's face it when you're in your early 20s your brain is barely pumping out things that you need to make rational decisions of course yeah. <laughs> it just makes you think about contemporary U.S. military and how many young oh, oh yeah are serving yeah um, trust me I can attest to that I can attest to that <laughs> <laughs> So what happens is this young band of Dakota militants, fighters, they uh, basically attack the family that is living at the homestead. And basically all the white people there are massacred. They are killed. Um, and initially, Little Crow, who I'll get into in a second, yeah. um, the leader of the Dakota, didn't want to fight the U.S. Army. He wanted to keep peace. Um, but after this moment, after this attack at this one white homestead, um, he joins sides and they decide to go to war. So that's basically how the Dakota War starts. And it lasts roughly six weeks until the end of September. Um, and we'll get to that story in a bit. Yeah. But just to orient everybody to the various actors in the story, um, you brought up John Pope and Henry Hastings Sibley. John Pope plays a really important role in the Dakota War, but he was also fighting in the Civil War weeks before. Yeah, I was going to say that's why his name may seem a little familiar to anybody listening, because he was, uh, you know, one of the Union's very middling generals uh, in the early parts of the war. I mean, let's call a spade a spade here, man. Like those, those Union, early Union generals were awful. Uh, they, they weren't that great. Um, but yeah, so if anybody recognizes that name, that is where it's coming from. Yeah. And John Pope actually is in command of the Army of the Potomac at the Battle of Second Bull Run, or yeah. Second Manassas, um, where he is humiliated and defeated by Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And at this point in the Civil War, Lincoln is fed up with his commanders losing. He wants this war to end. He wants them to defeat the Confederate Army, especially Robert E. Lee. Um, and when J John Pope loses, he gets sent west. Yeah. So, sort of like a punishment. Uh, that was a punishment, you know, idea of punishment back in the Civil War. Um, and so Abraham Lincoln makes him the director of the Department of the Northwest, um, which handles most of the old Northwest, which is Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, you know, Michigan, yeah. those places. Um, and he's charged with, of course, dealing with everything in that region, but also stopping the Dakota War. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, before you get on, that's the funny thing is that this should be a diplomatic posting, but we're sending a general. You know, that, that should tell you all you need to know about how the United States government looked at westward expansion uh, is that this wasn't supposed to be a negotiation. This was supposed to be conquering. That's exactly what this was supposed to be. Yeah. Um, and that, that's the unfortunate thing. I think it's still, you know, you know, some of that, that mindset still is present in, in our, you know, in our dealings with the uh, indigenous tribes, you know, in the United States now. But uh, please continue. Well, let me just add to that, too. I find it really interesting that you bring this up. Something I never really thought of is, yes, this seems like a diplomatic post, um, but it's military. Yeah. You know, and, and you see the same thing in Reconstruction with the, the uh, oh, crap, I'm, my mind went blank. Yeah, it happens, trust me. I, when, when you're trying to prep 15, like I'm trying to do two or three episodes at a time, so I'm trying to keep all my research together. Uh, but are you like are you talking like the military districts that that was, yeah Freedmen's Bureau I yeah. remember yeah. yeah when you have Oliver Otis Howard who's in charge of the Freedmen's Bureau yeah. which is set to like help transition African Americans from slavery to freedom um, so yeah th that's just really important part point that should be emphasized like these are military leaders trying to fix yeah the issue yeah and and we I think you and I could both agree setting a military mind in to fix a domestic issue probably not the smartest thing you could do. Um, you know, and again, even, even having, you know, uh, O.O. Howard, you know, in charge of the Freedmen's Bureau, like he was in way over his head to begin with anyway. And I mean, I, I would, you know, and as a union general, they weren't exactly what you would call friendly to, you know, the needs of newly freed, you know, uh, black men and women. So, uh, but that's, that's a whole other subject. We, <laughs> so Henry Haight, yeah, Henry Hastings Sibley, like who's, you know, what, how does he fit in? Yeah, Sibley, uh, so initially he was the first governor of Minnesota. Okay. Um, and during the Dakota War, he led U.S. forces um, in Minnesota and in Dakota Territory. Um, he led troops at the Battle of Birch Coulee and the last major battle of the Dakota War in Minnesota at Wood Lake. Um, he also served on this military tribunal, this kangaroo court, as a lot of people call, um, that punished and sentenced um, over 300 Dakota people to death. And that's something we'll get into a little later. Um, but he is known for his participation in the Dakota War in both Minnesota and Dakota Territory, which that's a point I should emphasize that the Dakota War mainly is known as an event that lasts from August to September um, there's these trials that take place in October and November, and it's most commonly known as ending with this large hanging, which we'll get into more detail later. But a lot of people do not know that at this point, the Dakota people are forced from Minnesota. They're fleeing west. Those who are not imprisoned um, or sentenced to death, they're fleeing west into Dakota territory. Um, and the U.S. Army follows them. Yeah. And Henry Hastings Sibley is one of these generals that has these, quote, expeditions uh, to basically hunt down the Dakota people who fled from Minnesota to rightly punish them. Um, the other guy is Alfred Sully. They have these two expeditions in 1863 and 64. Um, but I just want to emphasize to the listeners that the Dakota War 
is much larger than a Minnesota thing. Yeah. But we're primarily talking about Minnesota right now. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing, though. The Dakota people were – they covered a, a, a fairly large footprint uh, in the area uh, because these were – you know, this was a, a an indigenous grouping that they, you know, they were, they kind of moved around, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, they, they had, you know, certain times of year, they would be in this place and then they would move. And, you know, I, I think, you know, just before we get on, I, I, you know, that's the thing that I find really uh, gross, you know, is that, you know, these are people that are used to free movement and then they end up being penned into some of the you know, the worst places, you know, where they could be put, um, you know, so you're, I don't know, it's a, it's a form of like cultural destruction right there. It's, I, I will never, I don't know, I, I, maybe it's, it's looking at it through, you know, uh, and I used to get in trouble for this when I was at, at school was, is, is putting a modern perspective on, a, on a, an older problem. Uh, we know that was bad, uh, but it's still angers me to no end. Uh, I think, I, you know, erasing someone's culture and their way of life is just disgusting. Um, but for our Dakota leaders, you know, I, I found Little Crow, uh, and please correct me if I'm saying any of their names wrong. Uh, I, I don't do well with some English names, let alone, uh, you know, Dakota names, but Wabasha, Big Eagle, and Shakopee uh, were, the, were the big four I saw. Um, you had already mentioned Little Crow, but who are the other three? Yeah, um, so just to emphasize Little Crow again, um, he is one of these important leaders for the Metawakanton Dakota. He's leading the fight, um, and he was ultimately killed in 1863, as you mentioned earlier in the episode. Um, what's really morbid is his, he was scalped, Little Crow was scalped, and the Minnesota Historical Society had his scalp and his skull in their archival collections for many years. I think that they have now repatriated those back to the Dakota community, but for the longest time they had these human trophies um, as a way to show that the white people defeated the Dakota in that war. Oh, Especially man. since he was the, the, the main leader of the Dakota fighters. Yeah. It was this sign of victory by holding on to the human remains and the fact that i'm interested to see when they repatriated his remains um you know because i don't think minnesota's alone in that i think there's probably quite a few states that have that held on to uh you know native remains of leaders you know for decades and maybe even over 100 years before they they gave them back so they could be laid to rest properly um but uh now the the other three were they were they all involved in the same band of the Dakota or were they you know in other bands that that got together uh, as part of a larger group? Uh, I know Wabasha was. Uh, Wabasha was a member of the Metawankaton community, um, but he played a different role than Little Crow. Little Crow obviously led the Metawankaton fighters. Wabasha was known for his participation in a peace party. Um, that his main goal was to bring people, whiter Dakota, to safety. Um, yeah. And he didn't really fight. And it's really interesting. Um, I was just reading a newspaper article um, talking about the large hanging that happens, which, again, we'll talk more in detail later. Um, but his son is one of the 38 that is hanged um, in 1862. And the son is basically writing this letter, or somebody wrote it for him, 
kind of proclaiming his frustration with his father, Wabashaw, who was a chief, um, who basically convinced his son and his fellow fighters to surrender to the U.S. Army, um, and nothing bad would happen. And what happens is they're sentenced to death and they're hanged. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting to see Wabashaw as this peace figure that is putting so much trust into the federal government to just bring an end to this bloody conflict and to bring peace between the federal government and, and the state government and the Dakota community. Um, so Wabasha plays this really important role. The uh, two other leaders you brought up, Big Eagle. Uh, Big Eagle was a fighter in the Dakota War. Um, he was one of the many sentenced for their crimes that that's an air quotes yeah um committed during the dakota war um he fought in many of the battles um, and he's eventually arrested sentenced and pardoned in 1864 um and he ended up living until 1906 but he just has this normal story of fighting in the war uh the last figure that you brought up shakopee um he was an elder that consulted many of the Dakota warriors that attacked that first Acton homestead and many of the other battles. Um, he plays a really interesting role in the Dakota War because in 1862, after the end of the war and the hanging, he flees to Canada um, where he was captured by British agents, turned over to US authorities um, and held at Fort Snelling in St. Paul um, and he was ultimately executed for his participation in the Dakota War in 1865 under order of President Johnson. So this is after Lincoln dies, um, President Andrew Johnson sentenced two Dakota people to death. And that's why today, if if you see any of these commemorative activities from Dakota people and their allies, um, you'll see like remembering the Dakota 38 plus two. And so the plus two is basically the two that were executed under Andrew Johnson's presidency. Yeah, Um, it was essentially an extension of Lincoln's, you know, uh, policy in 1862, 1863. Yeah. And it's interesting, his story, you know, hammers in this, it was an international dispute. You know, the federal government got the, you know, the Canadian government or these British agents to you know, support in their efforts to return these Native Americans. And there's a lot of important work that's coming out right now. I know people working on Montana that are looking at the international border as this encounter between Native Americans and these different international governments. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. A lot of the Northern tribes, you know, like we said, were migratory and they, they crossed that border like you know, that was just part of their natural progression of the seasons, you know, and then we, we start setting up nation states and displacing them. And they're like, what, I can't just go back and forth between the two, like my people have done since, you know, time immemorial. Now I've got some Royal Canadian Mountie up my ass. And then if I go south, I've got, you know, guys in blue uniforms up my, you know, it's just, yeah. they were in a, a very untenable position. And this um, is an important point to make. Um, because when you look at the Dakota War and you look at how Minnesota banishes Dakota people from the state, um, which is a very contentious history as well, um, they're forcibly removed and there's this 
diaspora that forms of Dakota people moving to different parts, different states, different territories, even up to Manitoba. And one thing to recognize is the Dakota homeland, which in Dakota is called Minnesota Makoche, which translates to the, la the land where the water reflects the clouds or reflects the skies. Um, that the boundaries of that is basically Minnesota, Dakotas, North and South, um, Iowa, Manitoba. If you just imagine this huge space, that's their traditional homeland. Yeah. And so a lot of people talk about, oh, well, they were moved from the state. Well, they were still in their homeland. And that should be seen as some type of victory for the Dakota people is, is they still remained in their traditional homelands. Yeah, they were just cornered in spots that you couldn't grow enough food to support the people. Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe there wasn't enough access to clean water. You know, uh, you know, we we both know that the federal government knew what they were doing when they assigned them. You know, assigned them, and I use that term, you know, air quotes, uh, when they were forced onto those to those reservations. Um, but early on, you know, like you like we were talking about early on, you know, we we have this attack on this homestead, right? Um, but there, there were negotiations going on, uh, at, you know, in early August before, I guess, the shooting war starts, um, you know, and you brought up, you know, the, the Andrew Jackson Myra quote, you know, the, so far as I am concerned, if they are hungry, let them eat grass or their own dung. Um, you know, why, why did those negotiations fail? Did the Dakota people just have enough at that point? Well, I think it depends on the community that we're talking about, because, the Lower Sioux Agency and Upper Sioux Agency were completely different places. Yeah. From what I understand, um, those living in the Upper Sioux Agency who are not Metawankatan um, had a different relationship with white people than those of the Lower Sioux Agency. Um, the one time I was doing research in New Ulm, Minnesota, um, and they the, these sources were talking about a Dakota man who helped move women and children, white Minnesotans, from uh, places that were currently engaged in battle uh, to a safer location. So they were taken prisoner. And that was a big thing for the Dakota during the war. They would take prisoners um, and eventually they were released. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, there were, it depends on the community that we're talking about. And I think. You know, as I mentioned earlier, Little Crow was not interested in fighting. I think he wanted to keep peace. He wanted to keep, you know, fix and mend the wounds um, in relation to the atrocities that were happening with starvation and stuff of that nature. Um, but ultimately, by the time fighting came, it was like a wave that crashed down and there was this for, you know, this forward momentum to kind of take this initiative to fight back and resist the uh, the wrongs that the federal government, the state government, these Indian agents have done. Yeah, I just can't imagine. I mean, it's kind of like a rock in a hard place. You know, you're you're dependent upon you know the the Office of Indian Affairs and their Indian agents uh, for support. They're not delivering. Your people are starving. You know, they you know. They're being pressured to adopt Christianity. They're being pressured to, uh, you know, eliminate kind of that pastoral living. Um, and then, 
you have you know you're stuck between that and just the crush of white settlers that increasingly want more and more land so you know that's that's a kind of uh, a damned if you do damned if you don't type thing uh, you know and I, I can imagine that's probably what little crow was looking at like well you know we got this on one hand this on another neither situation is good but uh you know at least go down fighting i you know for lack of a better term um now the first big you know i wouldn't say there were a lot of big pitched battles you know during this conflict uh, but you know you had battle of redwood ferry um which was a an attack by the dakota on a you know on a on a settlement uh or you know or, and let me back up a little bit. By this point, you know, they realize there's an issue. Uh, the federal government realizes an issue and they raise Minnesota militia and put in a request for federal reinforcements, correct? Yeah. Okay. So you have uh, volunteer infantry companies that are raised right there in Minnesota with the request for like the battle hardened uh, union troops to come back and, and, and quell you know, this uprising. So like that, that's kind of the background that we're looking at. And before the, the federal forces get there, the Dakota, uh, you know, uh, go out and attack some of these militia units. Um, so, you know, the Battle of Wood Lake, uh, Battle of Redwood Ferry, and you had mentioned the Battle of New Ulm. Uh, well, you know, why was that a pivotal one? So there was actually two battles at New Ulm. Okay. Um, a few days apart. Um, but what's significant is almost 90% of the town is destroyed, burned down. Uh, the Dakota people surrounded the town. There was these vicious attacks. Um, white settler militias were fighting. Um, you know, they created these barricades. You know, there's, they're defending the white people that were living there. It got to the point where the white women gather all the children brought them into a basement, surrounded themselves around a keg of gunpowder, willing to blow themselves up so they wouldn't be taken prisoners by the Dakota because there were these narratives constructed by white people over what they perceived would happen if they were taken by Native Americans. They were very um, just morbid in nature. They very, you know, they're considering these Native Americans as savage and, you know, they were, they would rape the white women, they would kill the children, they would torture. And that wasn't the case. Most of the prisoners that were taken were released um, unscathed. Yeah, that I, I, I did figure or learn that, you know, that that's something I traveled from, you know, the East Coast further West as we kept pushing out was this, this narrative that, you know, they would be enslaved, um, you know, you know, like you said, they would be raped, they would be assaulted. And the thing is, is, you know, slavery wasn't a, a financial thing from, you know, until probably uh, late 1700s, early 1800s for Native people. Like it was, it was a way to replace people in their, you know, their clans or, or their bands that were killed in, in conflict or that were taken themselves, you know. Uh, it was, it was a totally different thing. You know, this wasn't like you were going to be beaten to death while you're being forced to work, you know, however many hours a day and you know you you had to deal with those deprivations it was it was something totally different it was a whole other cultural thing but you know thank you puritans once again for <laughs> passing out some bullshit uh and it, and it stayed with the american public as we you know manifest destiny our way across the continent yeah exactly you know? and you know new alm was a really 
interesting place. It was full of German immigrants. Yeah. Um, and there was this fighting mentality. Um, but there's one story about New Ulm that I, I always like to tell. Um, I went there in 2016, I was doing research. Um, in addition to the research, luckily one of the places important to this battle was a brewery. So, you know, quote, research was drinking their beer. Um, That's good research right there, man. That is great research right there. <laughs> oh, I learned a lot. It was, it was good. Um, but the brewery was there during the battles. August Shell Brewery, it's still there today. They make great beer. Um, but the interesting story is the brewer understood the situation that the Dakota people were living with, and he actually supported them. He gave supplies. He helped them out financially in any way that he could. And so when the Dakota fighters attacked New Alm, they actually saved his brewery from being destroyed. You know, the rest of the town is, is being destroyed. They're under flames. They're being shot up. Um, they're on fire. Um, but the brewery stayed intact. So what you see today um, that remains is what well, was there in 1862. Yeah. So it's really interesting. And, you know, people can perceive that story as, oh, here's this white savior, somebody who, you know, helped the Dakota and they helped him back. Um, but I think it's interesting that not all the white Minnesotans hated the Dakota people. And there wasn't this, you know, one-sided, two-sided relationship yeah. with white and Dakota. It wasn't a binary. You know, there were people that supported both sides. Yeah, I mean, that that's something that gets lost a lot in history. And, you know, I see this word thrown a lot of, thrown around a lot on Twitter, and I'm sure you've seen it. But everybody likes to use the word context. And 90% of the time, they use it incorrectly. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's just a fact. Um, but you can't look at history in a black and white because there's so much gray in the middle. Um, and, you know, German and Scandinavian immigrants, which I know made up a, a smaller part of the immigrant population in Minnesota and, and Wisconsin, um, they were still fish out of water themselves, whether they were white or not. You know, they still spoke German or, or Norwegian or Swedish. Uh, and, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're in the mid, we're, like you said, we're in this free soil you know, free market kind of mentality. And it didn't matter if the immigrant was white or not, you know, they, they didn't get treated the best either, you know, which is why a lot of them started pushing West is just to get away from big population centers where you had to deal with, uh, I don't know what the, maybe a, a nativist, you know, in a, in a gangs in New York type of way, you yeah. know, type of thinking, um, you know, so you can't really blame them, um, you know, for, for helping out or being involved you know, you know, or understanding the plight of, you know, the Dakota people, like, because, you know, they were getting shit on equally as well. Uh, maybe not to the same extent, but they knew, like, hey, there's something very wrong here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just grabbed this book off my shelf. It's called Lynching and Spectacle, Witnessing Racial Violence in America, 1890 to 1940, by Amy Wood. Um, this book has nothing to do with the Dakota War, but it talks about how people viewed lynchings as a spectacle rather than like this type of execution. You know, they found joy in participating in it. And one thing, you know, I read this last semester in a class and, and one of the points that we talked about was a lot of immigrants would go participate in, in witnessing and performing these executions as a way to show that they're on 
the white side, yeah. not on the black side. Um, and with white people seeing them like actively engaged in these murder murders of African Americans, you know, might change their perception in this white society. And so I often wondered, you know, is that the same thing in places like New Ulm, where there's these, you know, immigrants that are dealing with the United States and dealing with nativism, um, and does their participation in fending off the enemy um, help their positionality in, you know, rural America? Yeah, I mean, and that that's that's a, an interesting point because, I mean, we we can see through a ton of primary and secondary source analysis that. Yeah, they participated, and yeah, they had that good feeling with, with the larger, you know, nativist white population. But they were still outsiders. Nothing was going to get them in. Um, you know, uh, I can't for the life of me, I can't remember the book. But you know, that's why you saw a large number of Irish immigrants become police officers in the Northeast. Like that was they thought this is how I'm going to get in. This is how I'll be respected. Um, but you know, to you know, th there are certain you know, journalists and, and cartoonists to this day that still paint, you know, Irish Americans and their offspring as these drunks, you know, their patties, they're, you know, like it's, it, they never got in. They, you know, they were never going to be in. And, and, you know, that's the unfortunate thing is they, they felt participating, you know, in these negative, you know, in lynchings and, and the attacks on indigenous populations. They felt that, hey, if I do this, I'll be in, but they were never gonna, you know, they're always going to be the other. Um, now, you know, this was a short little conflict, uh, the, the shooting part, the shooting part of it. Um, and then we have camp release, uh, which was essentially where the Dakota band surrendered, correct? Yeah. 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 At, right after Wood Lake, that's like the final battle that Dakota forces are defeated by the U.S. Army. Um, a few weeks later, they surrendered at camp release, um, where they exchanged prison, well, they didn't exchange, they released white captives um and they surrendered to the u.s army formally um and that's like the camp release like i was talking about with wabasha earlier you know that's the moment where they've been convinced by their elders and by their chiefs that you know you need to surrender and if you do this good deed nothing bad's going to happen to you so at that point at camp release they release the white people they're giving up you know their fight um to try and just bring peace and end the conflict. Because um, they've seen what has happened as soon as the US Army gets there. You know, they've moved from these white settler militias to like US regulars and volunteer regiments that, like I said, have fought in the Civil War against the yeah, Confederacy. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, camp release, Dakota people surrender there. Um, and that's basically where the conversation starts with how they're going to punish. And let me emphasize that white people wanted retribution. Yeah, I did see that a lot. Like uh, a lot of the state government officials were writing to Lincoln. They're like, no, they all need to die. Uh, these people inflicted these horrible things on us. So everybody involved, uh, you know, had to be dealt with in, in, a, in a, you know, in, in, you know, essentially, hey, you're getting, they got to be killed, you yeah. know, eye for an eye type stuff. Yeah. And before Lincoln gets involved in this, um, they, they hold these military trials where 
on average, each hearing is two minutes long. There's no translator for the Dakota people to understand what's being told to them. Um, and they're being charged with murder, yeah. with rape. And ultimately, it started with 393, but they whittled it down to 303. And they decided that we're going to execute 303 Dakota militants who participated in the Dakota War, who raped our women, who killed our soldiers, who destroyed our landscape. Um, and when this decision is made, Abraham Lincoln hears about it. Yeah. And, and before you go on, this is what I thought was was shocking was that they tried them under a military tribunal system but at no point was an active duty uh military member involved it was all the volunteer infantry uh guys that you know essentially signed up for a limited amount of time uh you know a, a lot of these officers were elected by their people you know or they were brevet commands and you know they're you've got like a colonel in charge of a military tribunal under military rules that he doesn't really know. Yeah. Um, you know, like when you called it a kangaroo court earlier, that's exactly what it was. Were, were these type of things commonplace with, uh, you know, the other, you know, not, I shouldn't say other, with, with indigenous tribes that were uh, uh, displaced as well that, that came into conflict with the U.S. government? Um, I would say military tribunals were pretty prominent during the Civil War era in particular. I mean, if you think about uh, people deserting yep. or committing crime in the military. Um, one other story is 1865 um, in Mankato, Minnesota, the town where this execution take, takes place in 62, um, a Dakota man who's in, I think, the 3rd Minnesota Infantry, he's like a mixed Dakota white um, he deserts the army, returns to Mankato where his mother lives, and there's this news that his commanding officer has a stash of gold. And there's mixed stories on, like, is he attacking him for the gold, or is he attacking him for being part of this execution that killed his brother three years earlier? And so he attacks this family he kills everybody. He dresses up in the white woman's clothing. I'm still trying to figure that part out. But the local sheriffs of this Minnesota town, they capture him. And he only confesses to deserting the army. Yeah. He doesn't confess to killing the family. So they call in a military tribunal um, to properly sentence him for deserting the army and dealing with this massacre or murder or whatever you want to call it. Um, and eventually, before that military tribunal can arrive, the local population break him out of prison and lynch him a block from where the execution takes place three years earlier. So that's a fascinating story in itself, but it shows you that like these military tribunals were really important. Yeah. And I think it depends on the context of the situation. Um, there's a great book, Remembering the Modoc War by Boyd Cothran. And he talks about the hanging of this guy, Captain Jack, this Modoc fighter. There's a war that happens in the late 19th century out in the California and Oregon area. Um, and I'm pretty sure that that 
instance also had some type of tribunal. So I think that um, if there was some large scale event like a war or conflict lasting a significant amount of time that ends and they need to seek retribution and justice, they would use these military tribunals to decide the outcome. Yeah, and again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. We have a military person, uh, or in this case, a semi-military person, uh, in the case of volunteer, you know, um, you know, making decisions that, you know, could have been negotiated rather than just dealt with, with, you know, uh, summary military justice. Um, but you, uh, you said, that, what was the total number of people that were found guilty under the tribunal? So I'm pretty sure that it was 393 found guilty and they sentenced 303 to death. Okay. Um, um, and, and then that's when you said Lincoln starts getting involved, right? Yes, Lincoln hears about this because this is a large amount of people sentenced to death yeah. by the US military, whether they're volunteer or not. Like this is a significant amount of people. And Abraham Lincoln hears about it and he determines that he needs to look through all of the court records to make sure that this is the right course of action. And so he goes through the court records and he decides that he's only going to charge those who raped white women, nothing else. He finds in the case, there's only two charges of that. And he realizes like, that's not enough. Yeah. In order to appease the Minnesota people, he's gotta execute more than two people. Um, and so he chooses the, quote, worst of the worst, unquote, of, of the, the Dakota, 38. Um, and as this process is going on, the governor of Minnesota, Alexander Ramsey, is writing to Lincoln, Pope is writing to Lincoln, and they're urging, like, no, you need to kill everybody. You need to execute them all. And if you don't, this is coming from Ramsey, then you cannot count on Minnesotans to vote for you in the 64 election. Oh, yeah. Using it as blackmail to get Lincoln to kill everybody, to make sure Minnesotans get that retribution that they yearn for. Yeah, I, I, I've, re I've read that uh, in that it, was, it wasn't even just the governor, it was a couple of their sitting congressmen that were like, listen, if you don't do this, uh, we will withhold Republican support for you in 64. You know, it's, it was literally that blatant, like they weren't even trying to hide it. They didn't, they didn't church it up with that, with that political writing. They're just like, no, dude, hey, Lincoln, you either kill them all or like your own party will not support you in 64, you know? Yeah. So they choose the worst 38. And this is the decision to both appease the white Minnesotans and also show the surrounding native communities that are not Dakota. This is what happens when you attack Americans um, because there had been this worry that the surrounding native communities were gonna join into the fight yeah. after the defeat of the Dakota. Um, so Lincoln needed to show that like, we are going to execute this amount of people to send a message um, to ultimately bring peace. So the order signed by Lincoln 
for one week before his Emancipation Proclamation is signed, which is also another irony of the legacy of Lincoln. He's fighting for the freedom and emancipation of African Americans while killing indigenous people and rejecting them of citizenship. Yeah, uh, we, we can talk about Lincoln in a few minutes. I have my own kind of thoughts about him, but, <laughs> but I mean, that's a good point. That's a great yeah. point. Like he's literally, uh, you know, putting it in writing. We are, we are fighting to free slaves. Uh, but if you are a native person, what you can't expect from me is broken treaty promises, uh, failure to deliver up on treaty obligations, and then the end of a musket, or at this point, a, uh, you know, a magazine fed rifle uh, on your doorstep, probably burning down uh, whatever farmland you have and killing much of what you hunt to survive. You know, that's, yeah. that's, yeah. yeah. It's one so, of those great contradiction of history, right? Exactly. Um, so what happens is he orders this large execution to take place on December 26th, 1862. Um, and it's now known as the largest mass hanging or execution in US history. Yeah. And this is what my whole research focuses on right now is this hanging that happens in Mankato, Minnesota. Mankato was a pretty sizable town in 1862. Um, there's two rivers that converge in the area and it's known for its commerce and trading. It's kind of on the edge of this frontier. I don't like using the word frontier, but yeah. you know, it's kind of like a, a large city center for this agrarian rural area. And so, they decide we're going to hang these 38 Dakota guys in tandem and they build a large scaffold, really large scaffold that fits all 38 men on it at once. It's kind of a box. Um, and so on the morning of December 26th, the day after Christmas at 10 AM, um, they approach the scaffold. The power of the story is, a lot of people have argued that the hanging was a acceptance of defeat by the Dakota 38. Um, they went up on the scaffold, they said some type of prayer, um, and they were hanged. Yeah. Um, but in fact, like this is a powerful moment for the Dakota people because they started to sing this death song as they're climbing up the stairs um, to the scaffold um, that shows that they were accepting death and not defeat. So there's yep. this one last moment where Dakota people exerted their agency and their just belief on everything that had happened. Um, so what happens is, and it's really interesting when you get back to this topic of retribution, um, there's 4,000 white settlers in Mankato watching this hanging. On top of the 4,000, there's 2,000 federal soldiers there guarding the scaffold, separating the scaffold from the white people. The white people are cheering, they're hollering, they're throwing things. The US military that's in charge there, they ask a citizen to serve as executioner. This is somebody who, I've heard different stories. Um, he either lost his whole family in one of the battles or his family was taken prisoner and he lost one of his children. Um, 
he was also one of the signers of the state constitution. So he actually is an important figure, but during the Dakota war, he's just a normal civilian. Yeah. And they ask him to cut the rope, which he does. All at once, the 38 Dakota men fall. 37 of them almost die immediately. One of them, the rope breaks, he falls to the ground. Immediately, a few U.S. soldiers rush. They throw the rope over the scaffold again, and they literally hold him up until he dies. And this is like this performance to the white people surrounding it. Like, yeah. this is a visual end to your suffering. And so immediately after the hanging, they remove the bodies, they put them in a wagon. As that's happening, white people are ripping things off of the bodies, they're ripping hair, they're ripping clothing, they're ripping pieces of wood from the scaffold. One of the things that I found at the Minnesota Historical Society is they have a cane, a walking cane that was produced from the wood of the scaffold. And this guy carried the cane until he died. Of and course, on the cane is stamped December 26, 1862, as a visual reminder of what he witnessed. Some of that hair that was ripped from the bodies was turned into a, um, a clock band. So always on their wrist, they can see the hair of the Dakota person that had died that they watched. And another interesting story is as the Dakota people were removed, they're put into this wagon, they're transported to this large mass grave next to the Blue Earth River. They're buried in tandem. They're, the dirt is thrown on top of them. The next day or later that night, all of these doctors come and they exhume all of the bodies, one being Dr. William Mayo of the Mayo Clinic fame. His sons yeah. are the ones that created. Uh, they exhume the Dakota bodies. They take them for medical research and science because racial science is a big thing in the 19th century. Oh, yeah. And this body, this Dakota body, is put on display in Dr. Mayo's office. And I've even heard that they had it at the entrance of the Mayo Clinic for some time as a way to show off this human specimen, this other human trophy from the Dakota War. And since then, I should add, in case anybody wonders, the Mayo Clinic obviously repatriated the body and they now have a scholarship to Dakota people, students who are going off to college. So they are like paying back to the community. Um, yeah. I do have to say too that I contacted them to do research and they didn't have much to say. Of course not. I feel not. like they are purposely hiding things. Yeah. Oh, uh, dude. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Out. Yeah, I would not be surprised uh, if they were because, I mean, it, I, that was a big chunk. Uh, I actually uh, read, uh, I went on JSTOR because my account's still active, which thank you, UNC Pembroke, for not purging things the way you should. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I went on JSTOR and found a couple academic articles just about the taking of the bodies. Um, and, you know, that goes into that, you know, that that's another uh, big example of how we othered you know, the native populations is that, well, we can't perform these kind of uh, experiments on white corpses. They have to be, you know, native or uh, African-American or, you know, uh, the, the burgeoning Chinese population that was coming over in the West. It has to be one of those because they're not real people or they're lesser people. So we can experiment on them. And I'm just yeah. like, dude, 
you know, a person's a person's a person, man. Like what you find inside of a Dakota person, you're going to find the same organs inside of me. You know, <laughs> there, there's no difference there really. I mean, they might have an appendix or they might not, you know, or they, they might, you know, just, you know, and, and you also mentioned the race science, you know, that, that, that was such a huge thing, uh, you know, in the mid 1800s going into the early 1900s. Uh, you know, and then we even did it, you know, the U.S. government was was horribly doing it up until like the 50s, you know, so it's like, you know, it's it just, uh, like I said, it's it's me looking at a, at a, you know, a not modern problem through a modern lens. And, and you know, I'd like to think I, I've, I've learned to temper that in my own writing and my own research, you know, let's let's get the, the important stuff out of it, that information that people need to know. But if it still doesn't bother you, there's something wrong, man. You know, like it should bother you a little bit. It should kind of gross you out because like, you know, history is not just all the good stuff. It's a lot of bad stuff too, you know? Um, so now we, we, we have this unfortunate mass execution, you know, uh, it, it was a murder. I'm sorry. Like when you, you've won already, you know, there, there's no reason to put 38 people up on a, on a scaffold, um, you know? But, you know, the rest of the Dakota population, you know, we find them being shuffled off to internment areas like Camp McClellan or Camp Kearney, Pike Island, um, you know, before they're pushed, you know, displaced again to the reservation. Um, you know, what, what were these internment areas like for the Dakota people? So before we talk about the camps, we should talk about the experience of okay. moving to these camps. Yeah. Um, so actually before the execution this happened in november um the u.s government moved around 1700 to 2000 dakota women children and elders from the lower sioux agency to fort snelling which is in saint paul um you know this is winter in minnesota you know it's cold in Ohio, but it's even colder in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, it gets freezing there. And these people were not given adequate clothing. They had to march by foot. And let me tell you, from that area to St. Paul is by car, probably two and a half hours, maybe more, probably more. And, you know, marching long time especially when they're not wearing adequate clothing. Yeah, and then when you're not trained up for it, you know, like I'm, I'm an old infantry guy. That was my whole job. Uh, put some weight on your back and walk. You know, and I'm not saying that, you know, these people weren't fit, but when you're going through malnutrition and you're walking a couple hundred miles, you know. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, one of the most defining moments of this march from the agency to Fort Snelling I think it was Henderson, Minnesota. Um, they were marched right down the main street of the town. It's almost another performance like here, watch, yeah, you know, watch the prisoners walk by. Um, the citizens are literally throwing glass bottles at them. They're throwing canned food. They're throwing things, pots and pans. You know, they're screaming. They're pouring hot, scalding water on top of them as they march underneath these tall buildings. You know, it's like they're doing anything they can to punish them and get the retribution that they want. Yeah. And there's stories of a Dakota woman 
And you know, the soldiers that were escorting them were there to protect them from the white people. But there's a story that I heard where a, an older Dakota woman uh, stepped out of line to go use the bathroom. And you know, these soldiers bayoneted her to death because she left the line. And it makes you think of like World War II, you know, these, the, you know, the death marches for the allied troops on, you know. Yeah, on baton. And, yeah, exactly. And so by the time they get to Fort Snelling, they're put into this internment camp that's just below the, the fort. And let me add that the Fort Snelling is right at the convergence of the Mississippi and the Minnesota River, these two really big rivers. Um, and this is the center of the Dakota homeland. This is what they consider the center, Badote, yeah. the center. And this federal institution had been there a long time, but it, it's kind of interesting to think about why the federal government decided to put that fort there. Of course, the commerce, it's at the mouth of two rivers, um, but it's also a dominating force to show that they have control over this indigenous yeah. space. Um, but for the next three months, two months, this, these Dakota people who survived the march um, are forced to live in this, these inhospitable conditions. Um, and before they're moved from Fort Snelling to um, the reservations in, in Dakota territory, um, upwards of 300 people die from disease and malnutrition and mistreatment by the U.S. soldiers. Yeah. Um, so, and this is just one space, you know, there's these other places. You brought up Camp McClellan, which is in Davenport, Iowa. Um, the prisoners, the Dakota men who were not executed, so the 265 or so um, who were initially sentenced to death, who survived that, were given life imprisonment in Camp McClellan in, in Davenport. Um, which let me just add that a lot of people praise Abraham Lincoln for saving the 265 lives. They see him as the great emancipator. He's freeing the slaves. And yes, he had to execute a few, but he saved the many. These men were sent to this prison camp where almost half of them died of disease. So you know, it's really interesting to see what happens. And let me add another thing too. As these Dakota people are being forced into these concentration camps, which that's a contentious term. A lot of people don't like, yeah. a lot of white people don't like the term concentration camp. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, if you listen to the first episode with Joe Kasabian, you know, we got into that. We talked about, you know, what, what the actual definition of genocide is. Since that, for whatever reason, that's become quite contentious as well. Um, but yeah, you know, for any listener out there that wants to sit here and, 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 and try and dispute this, there were two types of camps in Nazi Germany. They had concentration camps and they had death camps. All right. Concentration is just what it sounds like. It's putting a mass amount of people into a controlled area, typically behind some kind of barrier where they're giving substandard nutrition, uh, diseases rampant, and there is no public facilities. Okay, that, that's, that's the rough outline for a concentration camp. And that's exactly what these camps were. Uh, and, yeah. you know, whether people want to admit it or not, that's what the early reservations were. 
You know, yeah. these, these weren't open spaces where, you know, the tribes could come and go. No, dude, you're here and this is where you're going to stay. Uh, you know, and, and yeah. that's, that's the sad part that people have to acknowledge. What we, I mean, people don't understand is Hitler got the idea for concentration camps from the United States government and their treatment of the native people. You know, that, that's a, that's a, you know, an, an annotated fact. Like he wrote that down, like that, that was written in Mein Kampf, people, you know, like, what, so you could see that what we were doing was completely wrong. Um, and, and, and this was an early, this was a form of genocide. You're, you're eliminating their, their right to, to practice their, their, their religions. You're eliminating their, their language. Uh, you're limiting their ability to move. You're ability, uh, eliminating their ability to earn a living, you know, and you're eliminating their ability to, you know, to essentially grow their population. That's genocide, dude. You don't have to just, you don't have to, you know, shoot people or, or, or do mass poisonings to commit a genocide. It could take a lot of different forms. And, and what we did until, I mean, you could set me straight here, it, probably until the 1930s, you know, it was a form of genocide against the native peoples of this country. Well, just think of the, uh, the boarding schools. Boarding oh, yeah. schools as uh, another form of this genocide. Um, and that's been a big debate in history right now. Um, some people prefer to use ethnic cleansing. Other people, like Native American scholars um, and people like me, like to use genocide um, because it's the destruction of culture. Yeah. And that's exactly what these camps did. And But the good thing is, um, as like the Dakota people are being forced in these camps, some of them are escaping and they're fleeing west as we talked about earlier. But the problem is the federal government comes and chases them down. Yeah. So between 1863 and 64, there's a continuation of battles between Dakota forces and the US Army, but this time they're adding in assistance from their Lakota neighbors or Nakota neighbors. Uh, neighbors. Um, and there's some massive battles that take place, but there's also some more, there's massacres that are happening. In 1863, I think it's Alfred Solly's expedition, they arrive at Whitestone Hill in right near the border of North and South Dakota. Of course, it's just Dakota territory. Yeah. Um, but what happens is the US Army basically pushes the Dakota forces, those who are not able to flee, their backs right to the edge of a cliff. You can either fall off or you can die. And so that's what happens. Some people literally fall into this cliff while others die, some flee. But what happens is, um, and this is really interesting in talking about total war, and some people don't consider the Civil War to be total war. They should listen to this story. So what happens is after the Dakota force is defeated, They've got this whole community with their teepees and their lodges and their, you know, supplies of living. Um, the Sully, pretty sure it's Sully, he orders his troops to destroy everything. They're literally throwing camp supplies into this lake that next to White Whitestone Hill. But the interesting point and the most devastating point is there was four hundred thousand pounds of dried bison meat that this native community had gathered for the winter. This yeah. is in October, 400,000 pounds. 
which is a lot. Yeah, that's, that's and, a, yeah. Yeah, and this U.S. force is ordered to burn it. And so they set this aflame. It's burning so much that there's literally a river of molten fat that is rushing down the side of this hill. And this is a way to, like, take the food supplies from their enemy, destroy everything possible to survive. It's just devastating. Yeah. Uh, and there's other things that happen after that. And this is something that you mentioned earlier. It's like these are the precursors to the Indian Wars that come after. And really something that I argue and I want to delve into someday in the future is like these tensions with the Lakota and George Custer actually started with the Dakota War in Minnesota. Yeah. Because as things are happening further west, they're pushing, they're creating a tension with indigenous communities. And as that movement west is happening, these Dakota people are blending in with Lakota communities. They're all relate, related. Yeah. And it's just interesting to think about how, like, there's this connection between different moments of this history. Yeah, I mean, that that's, when you come from a, uh, you know, a, a a similar linguistic family and you saw this all throughout the southeast as they were chased from you know florida georgia north and south carolina virginia you know they they would blend into tribes that spoke the same language or cultural groups you know what whatever the you know i i know that some some nations want to be referred to as nations instead of tribes and some are like no we're, we're a, a cultural group not a you know tribe uh so I, I don't mean any disrespect there um but you, you see that blending in. So if you think the Lakota, as they're pushed west, aren't talking to other, you know, uh, members of the same linguistic group and letting them know, hey, this is what's happening. This is what's happening right now. This is what happened to us. And this is what's going to happen to you. Um, you know, if you think it's not going to kind of grow that antagonism, you know, like you said, with, with Custer or even, even with Sherman, as he's put in charge of, you know, the overall westward, you know, the, the military arm of the westward push, right? Yeah. You know, that, that kind of contentious relationship did carry over into to all the interactions. Um, and then when you look at some of the, again, we should have a diplomat out there rather than army officers. You know, when we get that, that lone lieutenant or captain uh, because of, you know, uh, post-Civil War military life where you were in 15 years before you became a captain or whatever, um, you know, that actually wanted to, to have a less contentious relationship, what happened to him? They were relieved of command and they sent somebody else out there to, to continue that westward push. You know, it's, you know, the, you could say that, you know, the U.S.-Dakota War was, it was kind of like the, the testing and the proving ground of attitudes towards, you know, Native peoples that we carried into the Indian Wars of the, you know, 1860s and 1870s. Um, and, you know, it, not even just that, not just the, the, the war fighting aspect, but like once we have them, corralled onto reservations and, and we've done all this to to negatively affect their lives you know it's it's it just kind of shocking how you know we, we could have done so much so many things different but we didn't you know and by we i mean the you know the united states like we've these are the people that saved the first colonists coming over like and that this is how they're treated um so after internment and after they're moved, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at the now, what is the legacy of the U.S.-Dakota War? Like what, what, you know, what, what's the footprint, I guess, on history that this, this conflict left? Yeah. 
So the historical memory in Minnesota in particular is very contentious. Um, there's this assumption that the Dakota people left the state and when they left, the white memory formed. And for the longest time, that's been the fact. Um, the white memory is constructed on what I call white victimhood or have others called American innocence, where it's this idea that the American experience, the white American experience um, was always on the defensive. They were not guilty. They did not start all of this. They did nothing wrong. They were always the victims. And so a lot of the monuments, there's, you know, it's just like the Confederate lost cause that their participation in the war was just and we need to memorialize those who did everything they could to stop this insurrection of, you know, violent, savage foes. Yeah. Um, and in Mankato in particular, the town of the Hanging, um, veterans of the Dakota War and those who witnessed the hanging firsthand created a monument that read, here were hanged 38 Sioux Indians. December 26, 1862. That's all the monument said. There was no context. And their purpose was to acknowledge this was the end of the Dakota War. As we explained, it wasn't. Um, but this was the end. And this was a victory for the white population. And it was an important historical event that needed to be memorialized. And for the whole 20th century, that monument was very contentious. Um, it got moved several times. Um, there were debates over it. And something that I talk about in my master's thesis, um, before I get into that, actually, let me just say that the monument went up in 1912. The monument was removed in 1971. In the 1990s, the monument disappeared and nobody knows where it is today. So that's been the general history that has been told over this monument. My master's thesis, I have a whole chapter on this period. And between 1912 and 1971 in particular, there were Dakota people that were actively resisting the memory that that monument had, as well as other monuments in the town. Um, but it's really interesting in 1971, when the monument gets removed, the American Indian movement comes to town and they're not just protesting um, and demanding um, sovereignty and self-determination, one of their ethos for their um, trails of broken treaties um, that they were on. Um, they were protesting this monument and one of the AIM leaders rejected the name that said, here were hanged 38 Sioux Indians and requested they changed it to, here were hanged 38 freedom fighters. So there's this change in historical memory. There's this resistance by Native Americans, not just Dakota, but um, broader Native Americans and their allies to change this problematic historical memory. And that continues on uh, 1987, um, the Minnesota governor, Rudy Perpich creates the Year of Reconciliation. And this is not for everybody to come together. It's really to mend the wounds between white and Dakota because this event is so pivotal to Minnesota history and so contentious. Um, and so in this year, they create other monuments. They're trying to bring reconciliation. 
um, but that never really happens. And yeah. then by 2012, 150th anniversary of the hanging, um, they try another attempt to bring reconciliation. And by this time, Mankato has become a multicultural place. It's an epicenter of Dakota War memory. Um, not only do the white people remember it their way, but the Dakota people are there present. Actually, from the 1960s, they have a powwow that happens every year um, where they bring Dakota culture. It's a very educational opportunity for children in Mankato to learn. Um, in addition, on the anniversary of the hanging, every December 26th, they have the Dakota 38 plus 2 Memorial Ride that starts in South Dakota and ends in Mankato, where at least 38, I think at least 38 Dakota men ride on horses for this 300 mile journey. And they end at a place called Reconciliation Park. And they have these monuments, they have a big bison monument, they have a big monument that's a scroll that lists all the 38 names. And they tie these little cultural objects to them and they stay there until the next year. Um, there's these brief moments of commemoration where the town accepts it and they participate in it. But for the most part, this history is still very contentious there. Um, there's people that still write op-eds in the newspaper demanding the white settler story to be told. They reject any effort to give Dakota people the right amount of acknowledgement in the story. And it really shows you, and this is something I, I finished my whole thesis with, um, reconciliation will never happen in Minnesota because this all comes down to this really large concept of settler colonialism. And settler colonialism, as described by the scholars that really founded this idea, describes a system that destroys indigenous communities and replaces them with white colonies or white settlements. And so settler colonialism, of course, describes this whole Dakota War where the federal government and white settlers are actively removing Dakota people from their homeland through these failed treaty promises and so this whole history talks about that. But when you talk about the memory too, and it shows you the continuity between history and memory, is settler colonialism is still controlling the way that people remember Native Americans. Um, it serves as a form of erasure because white people do not want to see Dakota suffering in their story. They yeah. want to keep this notion of victimhood. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, white, you know, white America is built on uh, uh, projection of power, right? I'm better than you and I know it, you know, like white Goodman from Dodgeball. Like, honestly, that's, that's yeah. we, we, we subjugated this wild and, and uncultured and savage continent. And that, like, let's face it, that was the British, you know, uh, uh, mission statement throughout most of the world is that's what they thought they were doing. And they completely discounted the, the indigenous cultures uh, everywhere they planted the Union Jack, you know? Um, but I think a big part of cultural memory, like you're saying, goes back to monuments, right? A daily reminder, this is what a white American did uh, to show you how exceptional I am, you know, uh, to, to the indigenous people. And uh, I don't know if you read Dr. Dombey's book, 
you know, uh, the false cause, like, which is tied a lot to uh, monuments and cultural memory. Uh, you know, the first chapter is anyway. Um, I really enjoyed the book. But, uh, you know, and it is like our cultural memory, you know, the, 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 the royal we, so to speak, right? A lot of that, especially in the South, is carried out through Confederate monuments, you know, and, it, you know, we were the victims of, of uh, the, this giant, you know, uncultured northern apparatus that was forcing their beliefs on the South, you know, like we said, no, sorry, dude, it, it was tied to slavery. And it's the same thing with, uh, you know, the indigenous population. You have a monument that says on this day in 1862, you know, 38 Sioux were hung, right, or, or, or whatever the proper verbiage on the monument is. But that, that's, that's a projection of power for, for you know, the, the white Minnesotan. Uh, we, we, we had to kill these 38 people in order to pacify this area to make things better for, for Minnesotans. And, and what they meant by that was white Minnesotans. Yeah. And another thing too in Mankato um, that goes beyond like the granite monuments, um, the, the park that they have the powwow at, uh, Land of Memories Park is what the translation is. Um, was basically, it used to be Sibley Park, which is named after Henry Hastings Sibley. Um, and they split it in half and they gave one half to the Dakota people to have this annual powwow. And one thing that I found in reading newspaper um, opinion editorials and stuff of that, some letters, um, a lot of the white Minnesotans in Mankato did not want the Dakota people to have that land even into the 1990s and 2000s. They wanted to build a golf course. Of course they, they literally did. were, yeah. They literally were saying, oh, they don't use it more than once a year and it's a waste of space. They're not, <laughs> they don't need it. I would you argue know? a golf course is the biggest waste of anything. Space, <laughs> water, uh, labor, it is a waste, okay? <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, that, that just represents, you know, this whole settler colonial idea of like, oh, they're not using it. We need to use it. We need to erase their existence from this park. Even if they use it one day a year, it's a sacred space that was given to the Dakota people to use for the sacred ceremony. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, and, and honestly, that's the least they could have done. You know, the state government could have done uh, considering, you know, like you said, you know, how many, how many other, uh, you know, sacred areas of the Dakota, of the Lakota, of, uh, you know, any, any native grouping, how, how many of their sacred spaces were taken over, you know, by, by white settlers? All of them, dude, all of, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. why can't they just have that spot? Well, what's the big deal? Uh, you know, you can drive an hour or 40 minutes away and go play your stupid game, uh, which is what I call golf. I'm not a fan. Uh, you know, uh, you can go do it over there, but you know, I, I, I find how ridiculous white settler colonial, you know, or, you know, like, a white colonial settler thought is, um, and how, you know, we're, we, we spread democracy as Americans, right? Everybody's free to do whatever they, they feel and their conscience is right to do. Well, when you have a grouping that's trying to do that. And they're saying, no, we want a golf course. It, it, it completely flies in the face of everything they talk about. You know, yeah. it, it's, it's shocking. And the thing is, we're, we're seeing that a lot more, I, I think, now. It's, it's, it's a lot more pronounced, 
I guess, uh, probably over the last 10 years, um, as a lot of uh, minority groups are, are kind of taking their agency back and saying, look, um, while this, all this information is out there for you to see, you ignore it. So now I'm going to share it with you, you know, and, and that's the great thing about having a podcast or a Twitch stream or, you know, uh, what, whatever, whatever it is, whatever the, the medium is, they're able to share it. Like they're going to let you know, like, this is what happened to us. Uh, you can't, you know, you, you can choose to listen or not, but it's out there now and, and, and more people are starting to hear it and they're, they're becoming more aware. Um, you know, and I, I love that. that that's the, the, the big positive about technology, but then you have the big negative is the other side of it where those white, you know, settler colonialist uh, supporters are like, no, 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 no. They're, they're attacking American exceptionalism. And, you know, you get the Western chauvinism, you know, bullshit, uh, you know, like you get all this, <laughs> these, these horrible, uh, I guess, isms that also have the same platforms, you know? So, um, you know, I just, I'm, I'm shocked that, you know, a bunch of white folks in Minnesota are like, but we need a golf course <laughs> on the Dakota, you know, uh, a sacred spot. Like, dude, come on, man. Like, just let it go, bro. <laughs> um, um, you know, that's the unfortunate reality of, you know, this, what I was just saying, reconciliation is never going to be a reality because one, you need to give land back. Yeah. And as we know, Americans are not keen on giving things away. Um, or you need to pay reparations, or you need to um, admit, and this is the big thing, you need to admit that they did something wrong, yeah. and they will never do that. Yeah, so, uh, I think uh, Standing Rock showed us that. Like, the, yeah. the, the entire, dis, you know, the, what happened at Standing Rock was, um, was, it was a big indicator that, you know, the, the American establishment will never say, hey, what we did was wrong, um, you know, and, and you got to think this is the United States, once again, being at the ass end of things. We were one of the last countries to eliminate the slave trade. We were one of the last countries to eliminate slavery. Um, yeah. you know, we have even, I'm not to say the Canadians and the Australians have a great track record with, with, you know, uh, relations with indigenous people, but they've also come out and said, Hey guys, we screwed up. Uh, we screwed up real bad. Um, you know, I think the Canadians will take it on the chin when, when those lawsuits about, you know, their boarding schools hit you know, the ones that operated until I think like 1997, um, yeah. you know, like, and then there's the United States. Oh, no, 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 no. We, we didn't do anything wrong. What, what are you talking about? Like, uh, look, look at these native groups. They're happy. We gave them a yeah. space of their own. It's like, dude, have you seen some of these reservations? Um, you know, it could be, you know, you know what's what, the COVID issues on, on native areas, you know, native nations now that can be directly attributed to, to what we've done. You know, the U.S. government's done. Um, you know, their, their lack of access to, uh, uh, you know, public schools. I mean, just the ability for them to hire teachers. Like the, the, the Interior Department doesn't make anything easy on these, on these native groups. And then what, what's the big catch-all though, John? Well, we, gave, we let them have casinos, so they have a, a way to generate revenue. They're fine. No, dude, no, that's not how that works, you know? <laughs> and that's very problematic too, because in most cases, the money that, the revenue that comes through the casino, you know, allows for very few people to reap those benefits. It doesn't go, most of the time, doesn't help the community itself. It helps the very few yeah. line their pockets. Yeah, you know, like we, you know, I, I've, I, you know, we have the Lumbies, uh, you know, and I don't, I'm not sure if you've read up on them. You know, if, if they're, 
uh, I guess, if the approval goes through to federally recognize them, that'll be the largest indigenous group east of the Mississippi. Um, you know, and they've had issues for years trying to get, you know, federal recognition. They're, they're recognized by the state of North Carolina. Um, you know, and that leads me into why does the federal government have the ability to recognize a people that have a culture and a language and, you know, things that would make them, you know, their own nation. They have land set aside for a reservation that they're not even legally allowed to build on yet because they're not fairly recognized. You know, like why, why is Congress in charge of that? I'm still trying to figure that part out. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I loved, I wish I could remember the name of the, the case, but the Oklahoma case that said, um, you know, the state of Oklahoma didn't have jurisdiction over a certain thing. It could, it could overturn a lot. Um, I would love to see half of Oklahoma go to the Cherokee. I would love it because uh, I think there's going to be a lot of people whose heads spin. And that, you know, just me personally, that makes me happy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think you're right, man. We, we have to look at, you know, giving them back some of their, you know, their sacred spaces and, and, and places to learn and, you know, or not learn, excuse me, to live and to grow, you know, not just food, but, you know, the big picture grow. Um, you know, and, and it, it, you know, let, let's, let's try, you know, we can't fix what happened, but we can do better in, in connecting and getting to learn about, you know, you know, like for me, I didn't know what the difference between the Lakota and the Dakota were. Uh, I didn't realize Sioux was a kind of a, a derogatory term at the time it was assigned to this group of people, you know, like I need to learn these things. Like we all need to learn these things. Um, you know, so let's like, we have to do better, I think. And by doing better, like, I think we need to uplift and listen to indigenous voices and perspectives um, when it comes to all things related to their lives. Yeah. Because for the longest time, they've been controlled. There's been some authoritative power that's writing about them by researching them. You know, anthropologists kind of exploited from these communities. Um, and that's something that I like to try to do in my own work is to center on indigenous voices and perspectives to let them tell the story um, to show how they challenge and resist these powers of oppression and settler colonialism and i think if we all did that then things would get a little bit better yeah uh so we're going to end it on that let's do better people um so john where can we find you what are, what are some of your pluggables yeah um well my academic website is www.johnlakehistory.com um, that's got my CV. Um, it's got a really cool digital history project that I worked on last semester. Um, it's got a bunch of different things on there. But if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's just at John, or sorry, at the John Leg. Um, and then, you know, I've got an Instagram too, which is at I am the John Leg, which sounds really cocky in the way I have that, but let me explain. I used to be a country music photographer um, in Nashville and Georgia in the Southeast. Um, I did a lot of music festivals and people were making like fake pages for my work. Yeah. And I was never able to get like the blue check on Twitter or Instagram. So I just like said, I'm the real one or the John leg. Um, so I always like to emphasize that if people wonder like, wow, he's pretentious, uh, <laughs> self-absorbed. Um, but no, yeah, Twitter, I love Twitter. If you follow me there, I engage with a lot of hashtag Twitter story conversations. Um, 
and it's a lot of fun. So you can find me at those places. Yeah, if you're listening, get involved with the Twitter historians, man. They are great. Uh, my, my big get someday is to get Dr. Cruz on. Uh, I'm not holding my breath, but maybe, maybe someday. Um, but yeah, uh, you can find me at BeardedCynic473 on Twitter, or you can get hit the podcast up at YDK History Pod. Um, and every week I get a picture up and uh, about a clue as to the next episode. And I haven't had anybody guess on it yet. So if you're listening, guess next time. Uh, maybe someday this thing will be big enough to where I could have merch. And if you guess correctly, I'll be able to send you something. But that won't happen unless you interact. So listen, guess. Uh, and I hope everybody learned something and has a, uh, uh, a good week coming up uh, where hopefully someday we'll be post-COVID and uh, we, can, we can get out into the open again. But John, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope you had a good time. Um, and uh, you guys know where to find John. And uh, I'm kind of dragging this out. I don't mean to, but bye, everybody. It was <laughs> great. Thanks for having me. Sorry to interrupt. But oh, no worries, John. Hey, I'm, it was I'm a just, blast. I'm, I'm glad, man. Uh, this, we need to learn more about Indigenous history. But bye, everybody. <laughs>